you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. We invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. We're going to take a look today at Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 14 through 18. We make a big deal here about um, expository preaching and preaching the Bible uh, through books, passage by passage, for a number of reasons. And one of those reasons is that doing so causes us to teach and preach the whole counsel of God's Word as verses, passages that we would just pick out because we like this one or we want to teach that one or we want to learn about this one. This one seems encouraging, so let's do that one. But when we go through the Scriptures in this way, we're forced to look at passages that we wouldn't otherwise look at. And so the passage before us, I assure you, is one that I would not choose to preach if I were to preach for 100 years. But it's the next passage ahead of us. Uh, we'll take a look at it. Um, God, in His wisdom, has given us now two hard passages in a row. Last week we talked about the passage that we looked at previous to this one, and we said that that was a difficult passage. It was difficult for the reason of understanding it. In that passage prior to this one, Jesus seems to say a couple of things in there that are problematic for us. One is He seems to commend a dishonest manager for his dishonesty. And he seems to be commending to us to act in a similar dishonest sort of way. And then he goes on to even say to us that we should endeavor to make friends by means of unrighteous wealth or mammon so that they will greet us at a later time. And so those two taken together can be a little bit problematic to work through, but we worked through it last time and I think we understood it and I think that we had some really satisfactory solutions to that. The passage that we come to today is also a difficult passage. It's not a difficult passage to understand. In fact, part of the problem is that it is so blunt and it is so forthright with what it says to us. Uh, but the problem with this passage, the difficulty that we encounter is not understanding it, but accepting it. The passage that we're going to look at today, the danger with this passage is that Jesus is giving a teaching and he illustrates his teaching or he gives an example of what he's teaching and the example that he gives is so, what's the word I'm looking for? Provocative. That literally the example looms so large over the teaching itself that the example, if we're not careful, will derail the teaching by taking all of our attention away from Jesus' point and placing it on this very provocative example that he gives. So we're going to be careful to take a look at that. We, we will look at his example. And we will talk some about that. We can't avoid that. But we're also going to be careful not to let the example that Jesus uses eclipse the teaching that he gives us. Did you notice how I use the word eclipse? I just worked it right in. So, um, so, there you go. So let's take a look at Luke 16. Let's read together from verse, um, Verse 14 down through verse 19. As I'm reading this passage, let me give you a question to think about. Who does 
Jesus and the Gospels and the New Testament, who, who does Scripture teach us are the greatest enemies to the kingdom of God, to God's agenda, to God's people here on earth? Who does Scripture say to us are the greatest enemies of the kingdom of God? I'll give you multiple choice. A, atheists who claim that there is no God, that all these stories of miraculous supernatural things are just people's ways of trying to explain things that they can't understand. So that's A. B, those who would say there is a God and He is a creator God. He creates things and works miracles. And His name is maybe Allah, maybe Yahweh, maybe Buddha, maybe something else. Or C, those who would profess that there is a God. He created all things. He wrote a book. It's called the Bible. His name is Yahweh. We believe him and everything that he says in this Bible. Yet, we have no saving relationship with him. Who would you say that scriptures teach us are the most dangerous people to the kingdom of God? Those who would deny there is a God. Those who would say there is a God and we're not sure. He's probably all of the gods put together. Or those who say the God of the Bible is the true God. And what this thing, what this book says is true yet they lack a redemptive, born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. See, the Scriptures teach us that the most dangerous people to the kingdom of God are not those who deny His existence, but instead those who affirm His values, His ethics, and His teaching, yet they do not know Him in a saving way. Now that goes against what we would assume to be true. We would assume that those who affirm the Christian values and the Christian teachings, even if they don't necessarily have a saving relationship with God, they're good people and they're good-hearted people and we should affirm them and lift them up and help them. That would be the assumption that we would have. But Jesus says some things that are very much contrary to that. His encounters, His conflicts are always with those who would affirm God and who He is and the book that He wrote, yet deny His Son. So with that in mind, let's take a look at verse 14 down through verse 18. Jesus, or I'm sorry, Luke says this beginning from verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So I'm going to stop and uh, take a moment to ask God's blessing and anointing of what um, we say about this passage, and we'll continue. Um, Heavenly Father, we pray for your supernatural anointing of this time. The passage before us is one which we would seek to avoid if we could, but we have faith in you and the word that you have given us, and so we ask, Lord, for you to open the eyes of our hearts and pour your truth into us, whether or not that truth coincides with what we may already believe or what the world around us teaches us. 
We pray, Lord, that the kingdom of God would come truly into to reign here in this time of studying your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we read through that passage the first time, the first impression that you no doubt come away with is probably something like this. That, that seems like just a random collection of thoughts, almost like Luke assembled all the teachings and experiences of Jesus and compiled them into this neat framework of his gospel. And then he had these left over at the end. Kind of like, you know, you put something together. And after you put it together, you have a few parts left over. You're not quite sure what to do with them. Luke assembled all of this and had these teachings left over, weren't, wasn't quite sure where to put them. And so he stuck them here in chapter 16 for good measure. All of them, with one exception, are things that are familiar to us. We've heard elsewhere in the Gospels. We've heard elsewhere in Scripture. So we're not startled or we're not surprised to hear any of them, with the possible exception of that very strange comment that Jesus makes about everyone trying to force their way into the gospel. Not quite sure what that means, but everything else seems to coincide with some other things that we've heard and studied. We're just not sure why they're all here and why they're together like they are. It would seem rather uncharacteristic of Luke to just put these things here without a proper context, without a proper flow of thought, because for 15 chapters now, he's done just the opposite. He is the gospel writer that began by telling us how careful he has been to assemble all the teachings of Jesus and the experiences of Jesus and put them cohesively into this narrative form. So it would be very uncharacteristic of Luke to just throw this together like this. Indeed, it would be uncharacteristic of the scriptures in general. So we're going to look a little bit closer, and I think we'll see a pattern here. We'll see a uh, unfolding uh, context for us. So let's remind ourselves of the context. Uh, the context, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 16, Jesus says something to his disciples, but like we said before, Jesus is saying some things like we often do. He's saying some things to the disciples with the intention that other people hear it. There are these Pharisees that are near him and they're listening. Jesus turns and says some things to his disciples intending for them to hear it because it's about them. And what he teaches them, this parable that we studied last time about the dishonest manager. Remember, the point of that parable was simply this, that those people of this earth who don't know God, if they have enough wits about them to look to their future and see an unpleasant future and then use the resources available to them to improve that future, how much more should we, who are the children of God, who look not to an earthly future, but we look to an eternal future, how much more should we use earthly resources that God stewards to us, supplies to us, to invest in our eternal future, to, as we said last time, to, in essence, use God's resources to help further the gospel so that friends are there to greet us, as Jesus will say in the previous passage. The point is, don't be a lover of money. Be a lover of eternity. Be a lover of God. Let the focus of your life be eternity, and that's where the investment of your life will be. Knowing all along that these people that are listening to him are, in fact, just that. They are lovers of money. So they hear this, and they take exception to it. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were just that, what Jesus was talking about, <coughs> lovers of money, heard these things, and they ridiculed him they scorned him they mocked him they laughed derisively at him question for us what is the 
highest, most important goal of our life. We can um, just pull it right out of our Westminster Confession, can't we? Um, and is it question one, what is the highest goal of man? To enjoy God and honor Him and glorify Him. To use our lives in such a way that ascribes proper worth to God. To worship Him with all of our life. That is the most important thing that any of us can do with our lives is bring honor and glory to God. So think about this for a moment. If the most important thing that any human can and should do is ascribe honor to God, then what is the polar opposite of that? To mock God. I don't think you can get any more opposite than the the highest purpose of man is to honor God. Therefore, the lowest thing that man could do would be to mock God. I think of, you know, we've all had those experiences where we were laughed at, not laughed with, but others ridiculed us or mocked us in such a way that they literally laughed at our uh, unfortunate or our uh, awkwardness or whatever it may be. What a horrible feeling that is. But to think of those who would mock God in such a way and ridicule Him in such a way is stunning, quite frankly. Um, brings to mind, as I'm thinking through this, it brings to mind Galatians 6, verse 7. Don't be fooled. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man reaps, that he will also sow. We'll see that as the passage unfolds. So, what an incredible place to start. Jesus, in this passage of what he's about to say now, he's going to begin to describe to us a few things that are characteristic of those who are doing the mocking, those who are ridiculing or scorning or despising God. And he's going to de describe them to us as, just what we began with, those who are followers of a false religion. A false religion would be a religion that does not save, a religion that does not receive the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So false religions could be um, anything from Eastern religions to Mormonism to Christianity in whatever form it may take that is devoid of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is going to go on and describe those. Remember, he's talking to Pharisees that affirm everything the scriptures teach. And they affirm the sacrifices in the synagogues. And they, they affirm what we call our Old Testament. Yet, they do not have a relationship with God. And so Jesus is going to describe them as followers of a false religion. And the first thing that he's going to say about them is that they are self-justifiers. Verse 16 or 15, he says, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. So what does it mean to justify yourself? All false religions are all about self-justifiers or self-justification. Um, justify means either to declare one to be righteous or to make one to be righteous. Either way, it applies equally here to what Jesus is saying. Those who would do that for themselves, they would declare before others that they are righteous, or 
they would, which may, may even be more so the case, they would make themselves or seek to make themselves to be righteous before God on their own effort or by their own doing, by their own law-keeping or their own goodness. This is, by the way, the standard answer that, that we would receive when, when any of us would ask most anyone on the street or at a job that we work at or wherever it may be, outside of the body of Christ, you ask the question, is there a life after this one? Is there a heaven? And as secular as our society is becoming, you know, you guys are aware that the fastest growing religion in the United States is what's called, you heard this expression, the nuns. Not N-U-N-S, the N-O-N-S. That is the fastest growing category for those who answer the question, what sort of religion do you, do you have? None. So as secular as our society is becoming, ask almost anyone, and you will still almost certainly get the answer, yeah, I believe there's something after this life. I believe there's some kind of existence after this life. Call it heaven, call it whatever you will. And then the next question, of course, well, are you going there? And everybody. Do you know anybody that believes they're going to hell? Nobody does. Very few people would believe that seriously, would, would seriously believe that. So how are you going there? What's the criteria? How are you going to get there? And every time there's an answer that is a self-justifying answer. Well, I'm not a bad person. I don't murder. I don't steal. I treat my wife well. You know, all these sorts of good things about me. Or, um, you know, I, I, I have not done these bad things. So in some way or another, all false religions are self-justifying. So what does it sound like to be self-justifying? Well, it sounds like the, the Pharisees in the Scriptures as they talk about their law-keeping. Remember the, the, the rich young ruler. Um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does the law say? Well, it says this and this and this. Well, go and do that. Oh, I have. I have. It's a self-justifying kind of thing. The opposite of that would be the only answer that saves or at least reflects a heart that has been redeemed and is saved. And it, it wouldn't be an answer that goes something like this. How in the world do you expect to be with God in eternity? The only way is because uh, Jesus has written his name on them. Right here on my forehead. Remember Revelation 22. Those who see Jesus will have Jesus' name written on their forehead. That, that is the only. It's nothing that I've done. Nothing that I'm capable of doing. No, no decision I've made. I'm not smart enough to find the proper way to God. I'm, I, I wasn't good enough to find a church. None of that is because of Jesus and what he has done. So these are self-justifiers. Um, he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. So their concern is not even so much justifying themselves before God, but their concern is what do other people, what do men think about them? Then the second thing that Jesus is going to point out is that not only are you self-justifiers, but your hearts are evil. These are the whitewashed tombs that are righteous on the outside, and on the inside they're evil. He says then, but God knows your hearts. But God knows your hearts. So many places the scriptures affirm this for us. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 18, Jesus, uh, you do, some people do their deeds in public, but Jesus sees in secret. Or uh, Jeremiah 17, uh, I, the Lord, search the heart, 1 Samuel 6, 16, verse 7. Uh, man judge, judges by the outward appearance, but God judges by the heart. 
or Deuteronomy 29, 29, uh, the mysterious things belong to God, or, or so many times in the Gospels where Jesus encounters people and the scriptures will say that he knew their thoughts or he knew their hearts, or he discerned their motives. We see that throughout the scriptures that God knows their hearts. I have never found that to be a comforting thought. I don't know about you. I've never found that to be a comforting. You know how sometimes we will use that expression, you know, to, to mean I tried to, to help somebody and it didn't really work out. It kind of blew up in my face. But God knows my heart. Yeah, God knows my heart. Really, you find that to be a good thought. I find that to be a terrifying thought because I know what's in there. So I don't find it comforting that God knows my heart. But I do find it impressive that he knows my heart and still loves me and still accepts me and still desires me. That's the, that's the thing to come away from the scriptures that teach us that God knows what's in there. It's not, oh, that, I'm so glad. Bless my heart. It's, wow, he knows me and yet he still loves me. He knows all the bad things I haven't even done yet. And he still loves me. So that's where we come up with it. Jesus, that Jesus says, God knows your hearts. So then he says, the third thing to know about those who follow these false religions is that um, their desires and their values are corrupt and opposed to those of God. He says, uh, continuing in verse 15, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Your, your translation may say detestable in the sight of God. The idea behind that is literally in both the Greek and the Hebrew, that word literally means something which smells bad. Really technical word, really sophisticated kind of word. It literally means a pile of something that is emitting a noxious odor. And so the thought here is to put that in your mind in opposition to what the scriptures will say to us about the heart of the worshiper and our worship to God, how that is like a sweet aroma to God. Or the sacrifice of Jesus is a sweet and pleasing aroma to God. Or, um, or as Paul will say to the Corinthians, that to those who are lost and dying, we smell like death. But to God, to his people, we are the, the aroma of Jesus Christ. So the, the contrast here is a stark one. That literally, the things that man appreciates, the things that man affirms, are a noxious, offensive odor to God. Now that doesn't mean that every single thing that man affirms and celebrates is necessarily noxious to God. It doesn't mean that that unsaved people, everything they ever do, stinks in God's presence. The, or, and I'm sorry, everything they do, but everything that they affirm, everything that they celebrate, everything that they validate is offensive to God. But it does mean that if all of mankind or most of mankind or in general mankind affirms something, that's a pretty good indicator of how God feels about it. Now, that is an extremely helpful thing to take and to put into your souls and sort of put here in the back of your mind as we're going through life and you have constant judgment values to make over this or this thing or that thing. And you hear about 
maybe this preacher and what he's doing and what his church is doing and how the whole world seems to be celebrating him or her or uh, this group over here and the good things that they're doing and how the whole world seems to be celebrating them. Well, if the whole world celebrates them, according to Jesus, that's not a real good sign. The things that man affirms are the things that are noxious to God, the things that stink in his sight. So he says to them, your values and your, des your desires are completely opposite to those of God. Uh, then he says, lastly about them, he says not only those things, but they also reject the gospel of grace. Verse 16 now. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. That seems like a turn of events. Jesus was talking here about uh, being the, the things that, that man affirms are an abomination to God and self-justifying people. And then he's talking about John the Baptist all of a sudden. How does he get from there to there? Well, John the Baptist, as you recall, John was the, he was a unique person in the sense that he was the last Old Covenant prophet and he was also the introducer of the New Covenant. No one else in, in God's redemptive history has filled a role like that. But he was the last prototypical Old Testament prophet, but he was also the one whose preaching and whose ministry introduced the Messiah. In fact, he baptized, if you remember, he baptized Jesus. Remember in Luke chapter 1, as Zechariah, his father, is singing this song to God at the birth of John the Baptist, he, he is, is proclaiming salvation is now here. This is what we've been waiting for. John was the one whose life spanned that. We can kind of think of John like a bridge, a bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So um, the Old Covenant, it's good for us to think about the Old Covenant in the sense of promise and the New Covenant in the sense of fulfillment. So bear with me just a moment. That's a, a terrible overgeneralization about both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it does work to say that one of the central purposes of what we call the Old Testament scriptures were to relate to us a promise that was to come, the promise of Messiah. And then, of course, the New Testament is the coming of that Messiah, his teaching, his work, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and the establishment of his church and the teaching of his church. So it's kind of like promise and fulfillment. Jesus says, you are those who accept the promise but not the fulfillment. What a crazy thing that is to accept the promise, but not the fulfillment of such a promise. But he says um, very plainly, you're the ones who reject the fulfillment. Now, the fulfillment of the promise was a Messiah of grace and a Messiah of forgiveness. One who came and said, listen, let me just sort of summarize the law for you. Matthew chapter 5 goes up on the mountain and says, here's what the law is all about. And oh, by the way, you can never do that. That's why I'm here. I'm here to do that in your place and then be the lamb that is sacrificed for your sin and then rising from the grave, extend that righteousness to you by faith alone. That was what they didn't accept. They didn't accept the, uh, the fulfillment of that promise. They didn't accept the new wineskins. John was here to say the door has arrived. The gate is here. 
the, the bread of life has come finally, but they, do, they wouldn't receive that. So then Jesus takes a turn at verse 17. Up until this point, he is responding to those who are laughing and ridiculing and mocking him. They are the lovers of money that Jesus has just taught against. And then Jesus gives these indications, these descriptions of those who would affirm the God of the Bible, but have no relationship with him, would reject his offer of grace because they would prefer to stand on their own merits. So then Jesus, after describing them, he takes a turn at verse 17. Now before we read verse 17, let's think for just a moment of Jesus's ministry and Jesus's life. Jesus was constantly being accused of a lot of things, wasn't he? He was constantly under attack from from those around him. But if we look at all of the attacks that were launched against Jesus, and we sort of categorize those down, we can come up with, I think, two basic accusations that all of everything else that was launched against Jesus basically fell into two categories. One, Jesus was accused of making himself equal with God by calling God his father, by saying the father and I are one before Abraham was, I am, all kinds of things like that. He made himself to be equal with God. The other accusation came in a lot of different forms. It was, uh, you violate the Sabbath. We're told not to do this and this and this on the Sabbath, and yet your, your disciples are plucking grain. Your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. Um, you heal on the Sabbath. You do all of these sorts of things that fill in the blank. All these things break the law. And so that was the second accusation against Jesus. One, you make yourself to be God. Number two, you're a lawbreaker. And furthermore, you not only are you a lawbreaker, you are teaching people to break the law. Or let me use a different word that probably fits better what they were saying. You are a law relaxer. Remember? Jesus would say, uh, no, my disciples aren't violating the Sabbath. Since when is it a violation of the Sabbath to pluck some grain and eat it? Do you remember what David did? Things like that, right? So their accusations were, not that you're just this outrageous sort of break every law you can, but that you are a law relaxer. What was one of the main things that they held against Jesus was that he, in fact, this whole passage begins back at verse, uh, back at chapter 15. The tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives tax collectors and sinners. In other words, he doesn't properly distance himself from those that good law keepers distance themselves from. So their accusation was that you are a law relaxer. God has given us this law and you are living in such a way that's cutting the corners and you're teaching other people that, well, this isn't quite so important and uh, staying away from lepers is not quite so important and uh, not plucking grain on the Sabbath is not quite so important. Washing your hands before you eat, ritualistically washing, washing your hands, all those things aren't quite so important. He was accused of being a law relaxer. With that in mind, Verse 17 is going to make perfect sense to us. Jesus is responding to their multiple, multiple accusations of him being a law relaxer. And so he says, um, you claim that I relax the law? Well, listen to this. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away 
than for one dot of the law to become void. That is a powerful statement that says, in essence, you are calling me a law relaxer. Let me just say to you, you yourself have too low of a view of the law. You, he's saying to the Pharisees, even you who supposedly live by the law, even you have too low of a view of the law. Listen to this. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to be made void. So imagine the massive, massive contradiction here. Imagine that instantly the universe and everything in it just cease to exist. It's just here one moment and not here the next. Jesus tells us in um, Matthew's gospel, one day that'll happen. One day this earth will be burned up and recreated. But Jesus says, it's easier for everything you've ever seen to just poof, be gone, than for one dot of the law to be made void. So one dot, uh, you may have in your translation, it may say one iota, it's a Greek letter, um, uh, one yod, maybe you've heard that before. Basically what Jesus is saying, um, the yod, if we were to look at the Hebrew alphabet, the, the yod is the smallest letter of the alphabet. And it looks, literally it looks like an apostrophe. You, you, you think it's just a punctuation mark, but it's a letter. It looks just like a, an apostrophe. Jesus says, even that, the smallest possible mark of God's law cannot pass away. It would be easier for everything else to pass away than for one dot of his law to be made void. So let me say a couple things about that, and then let's back up and talk some more about the law. Um, the first thing I want to say is that this is, this and some parallel passages like Matthew 5.18, these serve as the, I think, probably the best scriptural validation for something that we believe in called verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Now, those are some big words that probably don't care a whole lot about, but let me just explain to you what that means, and I think it'll be important to you. We believe in what's called verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. That means verbal, means, means that just like it sounds, that God's Word came to us verbally. God has spoken to us. It is His Word. Secondly, the word plenary is a, um, a word that just means full or complete. And so what that means is that all of Scripture is equally inspired. That not all Scripture is equally applicable to all parts of life. Not all Scripture is, is worthy of, of, of as much study as some, of some other parts of Scripture. But it does mean that all of Scripture, every word of it, is equally inspired and equally valuable to us. So uh, you probably have, have heard things said like, uh, um, I believe in the message of the Bible, but not necessarily everything the Bible says. You, you heard that? I mean, that's, that's common today, to say, I believe in the message of the Bible, 
but not necessarily everything. And that's often used to kind of get around some of the sharp corners in Scripture that are not necessarily comfortable for us. They're not the positions we would want to hold so we can say, well, I believe in the message of Jesus or the message of the Bible, but not every single word. Listen, that is, that's the most nonsensical thing you could possibly say. Jesus says to us right here, it's all or nothing. Because Jesus, what Jesus says here about the law says to us, every dot of it is equally important or none of it is. So either you throw Jesus out and everything that he said and everything that's written or you hold Jesus's view here. So um, that's helpful to know when we're, you know, I know sometimes we're looking for new churches and, and, and stuff. Uh, that's helpful to know those words, verbal plenary, um, mean that, at least in theory, that they believe not only in the inspiration of Scripture, but the full and complete inspiration of Scripture. Okay? Um, a couple of places that we see this, it's really interesting to me. Anyway, hopefully, hopefully it's interesting to you as well. But this idea that every dot, the smallest increment of God's Word, is something that is inspired and valuable to us, um, shows up in some places like, for example, Galatians chapter 3. You remember in Galatians chapter 3, I'll just kind of recount this to you. Paul's making an argument to the Galatians, and he says this. He's talking there about um, the offspring, and he says, uh, let me just flip over to Galatians chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. You can uh, listen. Um, Paul says this, he says, he's talking about the law here. He's talking about the promise of the Messiah. To give a human example, brothers, even with man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is that? Christ, he says. In other words, Paul's argument is this. The promise was made to Jesus and those who are in Jesus. The promise of the Messiah wasn't, wasn't just made in general to everybody. It was made to Jesus. And to be partakers in that promise, we are in Jesus Christ, right? His argument is based on what? One letter. He says, he says the promise wasn't made to offsprings, plural. It was made to offspring, singular. His argument rests on one letter. And so Paul can say, I can build an entire argument over the fact that this is singular and not plural. We see it in places like that. Or a few chapters later in Luke's gospel, we're going to see Jesus do this kind of thing when he's going to say, uh, he's going to talk about uh, in the Psalms where, where he's having, the, once again, a confrontation with the Pharisees. And he says, well, what about the scriptures where it says, my Lord said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my uh, right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Jesus says, how, how is it if the Messiah is the descendant of David that David calls him my Lord? So Jesus builds an argument, you see, on some precise words. Those are some examples for us that teach us that God's word is that important 
that reliable, the inspiration is that full and that complete so that we can look literally at singulars versus plurals. We can look at wording, specific wording, and all those things are meaningful to us, okay? So some encouragement there, some encouraging words about our view of Scripture. But now I want to kind of take a step back and I want to think for just a moment about what Jesus is saying to us about heaven and earth passing away before even one dot of the law were to pass away. And I think it's worth just a few moments of our time for us all to think about the character of the law of God. And why is it that Jesus can say to us that God's law will not pass away? Um, this is something that, that maybe you've thought through, maybe um, you've not thought through, but I think it's helpful for us as Christ followers to think about what God's law is and what it's not. So the first thing to, to kind of point out to us is that we often get really confused when we talk about the law of God. And we hear those who aren't believers in God make arguments such as, uh, you know, uh, the Old Testament says that uh, homosexuality is wrong, but it also says you shouldn't eat shellfish. So what about that, right? How are you going to keep one and not keep the other? You've, I know you've heard arguments like that, okay? That's making the mistake of assuming that all of God's law as found in the Old Testament is the same thing. It's not. All scholars, all biblical scholars agree that the Old Testament has three distinct types of laws. One are, are, are called civic laws, or civil laws, you might call them. Those are laws that have to do with a government governing the people that they rule over. God gives these laws to Israel. Why? Because Israel in the Old Testament was the only nation to ever exist in which the nation, the government, was in covenant relationship with God. Never been that since. Won't be that again until Jesus comes back. But Israel was a nation in which the government and the nation as a whole were in covenant relationship with God. So therefore, God gave to Israel literally the rules for them to govern themselves by. Um, we don't do this today because, you know, uh, our Congress gets together and debates different laws and everything, and they don't have a prophet of God come in and speak to them about what God would say. Sometimes we might think that they should, but we don't do that because we're not a nation that as a whole, we're in covenant relationship with God. Israel was. So God gave to them civic laws, such as, you know, like our speed limit laws or our... Um, you know, laws against shoplifting, or whatever it may be that govern us today, God gave those laws to ancient Israel. Those laws are no longer valid because there is no nation that is in covenant relationship with God at present. So those are the civic or civil laws. The second type of laws we find in the Old Testament were called ceremonial laws. They were laws that related to the ceremony of worshiping God under the sacrificial system, the pre-Messiah sacrificial system. They governed the dietary laws. They governed the laws about sacrifices and all those sorts of things, okay? Jesus says very plainly, he fulfilled those laws. In fact, that's one of the main points of the whole book of Hebrews, that Jesus fulfilled all of the ceremonial laws. Remember, Jesus declares foods to be clean, and he doesn't do that because he says the Old Testament laws about not eating shellfish was silly. He does that because I am here to fulfill what that law pointed to. So he fulfills the ceremonial laws for us. Again, 
The whole book of Hebrews will make that point to us very clear. The third type of law found in the Old Testament is what we call the moral law. Now, the moral law, when we read in the New Testament the word law, it's talking about the moral law. When Paul talks about the law, he's talking about the moral law. When Jesus is, is talking about the law here, when he says the law will not pass away, he's, he's not talking about the ceremonial or the civic law. He's talking about the moral law. Now, what is the moral law? The moral law, just like it says, just like it sounds like, it governs our behavior, how we act, how we think, how we feel. It governs the morality of our life. It's summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a summary of how God would have us to live and think and act and speak and so on and so forth. That is the law that is equally valid for all people in all times. The Ten Commandments are just as valid for us today as they were for Old Testament Israel. Jesus says that is the law that will never pass away. So, Let's think for just a moment about why Jesus can say that and what it means to us today. There are um, a few different views that Christians hold about how the, what the law is, what God's moral law is, and how it came to be. And they, they kind of go like this. The first view I represent like this. Okay, The cloud represents God, and the, the two tablets would represent the law. Most Christians, by default, because they maybe haven't thought through this or whatever the case may be, most Christians, by default, hold this view. They see the law of God as something that God has made and given to us. In other words, God says it's wrong to lie. Why is it wrong to lie? Well, because God said so. God told us. God made that law. And so... The things that we should do or shouldn't do, we should do them or shouldn't do them because God told us to. Because He, in His wisdom, in His perfection, in His perfect love and perfect omnipotence and omniscience, He was the one who said, it is good for man to tell the truth. So I establish this law, be truth speakers. Most Christians by default hold to that view. They just think that the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, were something that God made and gave to us. Um, so let's think about this. There's a couple of problems with that. Can you imagine what they might be? I'll tell you the first one. The first problem with that is that if the law of God is something that he just made and gave to us, then what's to stop him from changing it? He said that lying is bad and truth speaking is good, but what if he changes his mind? You say, well, God doesn't change his mind. How do we know? Because he told us so. Oh, well, if his words that give us his law are something that he made and gave to us, then we can't necessarily trust that what God has said is always going to be the case. He could change it if he wants. It, Muslims believe that. They believe that the law was something God made and gave to them, and he can change it whenever he wants, because he's God. So that's the first problem, um, but that's not the major problem. There's a much, much, much bigger problem than that. Can you imagine what it is? If the law of God is something that he made and gave to us, the big problem is the cross. 
if the law of God, which we have violated, is what condemns us as sinners, why did Jesus die? If we violated a law he made, couldn't he just forgive us? And his son not die? If God made the law, if God determined in his wisdom, truth speaking is good, I will declare to you, speak the truth. And we speak lies. And God says, oh, now my son must die. Why? You see, if God made the law and gave it to us, Jesus died for nothing. That's the first view. The second view, sometimes people wrestle with that and they say, well, okay, the opposite must be the case. So I represent it here as the tablets above the cloud. Okay. So in this understanding, God doesn't make the law and give it to us. The law already exists as universal eternal principles. And God, in his perfect divine wisdom and his love for us, tells us what those laws are. It is a universal eternal principle that it is good to speak the truth. And God wants us to know that. So only he and his wisdom understands that. And he communicates that to us. He's giving us these eternal, universal principles. What might be the problem with that? Who made the principles <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, but even, let's just assume nobody did. Let's just, just say they are what they are. It's just always has been and always will be good to tell the truth and bad to lie. The problem is, once again, what's going on at the cross? Because if we have violated these eternal principles that God himself adheres to, right? Jesus comes and he follows these eternal principles, then his death can't save others who violated a principle that's above himself. See? So if, if the law just exists, always has been, always will be, God just tells us what that law is, then he has no power to forgive those who have broken it. So the only option is what we represent here, that the law and God are the same thing. Not in the sense that we worship laws, that God is his law, but in the sense that the law is a description of who God is. God says to us, be people of truth because I am truth. Be people who are faithful to those that you're in covenant relationship with. Why? Because I am faithful. And I made you. And furthermore, I made you in my image. And so therefore, for you to not be consistent with who I am, who has made you in my image, that is the essence of sin. To not live consistently with how our Maker has made us to be. This may sound like splitting theological hairs, but I assure you, to understand the nature of God's law immensely helps you, not least of which when your kids ask you, why do I need to do that? Why is it wrong to do this? Or, you know, when they, when they come home from school and they say, well, the teacher said, this is okay or that's okay. No, that's not okay. Here's why. 
Well, why? Because the Bible says so, right? Sorry, not good enough. The Bible said so is no longer good enough. Why does the Bible say so? The Bible says so because that's how God is. We are truth speakers because God is truth. And to be other than that sins against the God who made us in his image as also truth speakers. Okay? So it's helpful to think to think through that. That's why Jesus can say, the law will never pass away. That, that would be like God passing away, or that would be like God changing. That will never pass away. We will be perfect Ten Commandment keepers for eternity. We will be Sabbath keepers for eternity. We will be uh, uh, truth speakers for eternity. We will, uh, we will not steal for eternity. We'll be perfect sa- uh, uh, moral law keepers because that is the character of God. So Jesus says, that will never pass away. You say that I am a relaxer of the law? I'm not the relaxer of the law. You are the relaxer of the law, is what Jesus says. And then in verse 18, he's going to give us this example. For example, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Um, So that's the example that Jesus gives. Um, Jesus is accused of being a relaxer of the law. And so he's saying this to those who themselves are teaching that divorce and remarriage are okay. Um, Maybe even some of those that he's speaking to are divorced and remarried. And so his example is, you look to me as one who is a relaxer of the law. Let me just give you this one example of how you are a far greater relaxer of the law. So as soon as we read verse 18... We've stepped in it, haven't we? <laughs> and you can't possibly step in it and then keep on walking without at least stopping and talking about what you've stepped in. Um, verse 18 has three provocative words. Uh, divorce, remarriage, or marriage, and adultery. And those words jump off the page at us with vengeance. And they demand that we at least stop and talk about them. Again, the point of the passage is not divorce and remarriage. That's an example that Jesus is using to make a bigger point. So we're going to be careful not to let this hijack the point of the passage, but at the same time, we do need to stop and think through Jesus' example. So, um, the question I think to begin with is what does the Bible teach about believers and divorce and remarriage? Does the Bible teach that there are instances in which it is okay for believers and followers of Jesus Christ to divorce? And if so, is it then okay for those to remarry? Um, No doubt, uh, probably most of us have been taught as I was taught um, for many, many years, that um, if we were to just turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5 or chapter 19, we would find this supposed exception to that, in which Jesus lets us know that there is one valid reason for which um, that we as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a valid reason to divorce. And that is for, as you've heard it said, what is it? Infidelity. Infidelity. 
Matthew uses the word porneia there, which is not the word for adultery. It's the word for fornication. Um, but if that be the case, then Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 that divorce is okay and divorce is acceptable. Unfortunately, I had a professor in seminary that showed me from the scriptures that that is not what Jesus was saying. However, even though as I say that, that opens a huge can of worms. That is beyond what we could possibly talk about this morning because that is not an easy or short thing to walk through. But I will say this. I have tried many times to change what I believe. I have sought the Scriptures on at least three different occasions in which I've just said this is, this is a hard position to hold. I don't want to hold this position. Can I believe otherwise? And I can't. I have read more about this topic than any other topic. I have spent more time pouring over what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage than any other single topic. And um, I cannot come to any other conclusion. I'm happy to have that discussion another time. But again, it, it would totally derail what, what Jesus is saying here to go down that track right now. But here's the point. The point is, Jesus' example is not about divorce. Jesus' example is about what? Remarriage. That's his example. His, his example is not divorce. His example is remarriage. So, whatever we may believe about divorce, the scriptures are very, very consistent about what the believer is to understand about remarriage. The scriptures, in my view, do not give us the option, if we're a believer, to remarry unless the spouse has passed away. Now, uh, we find that in Romans 7. We find that here. We find that in Mark 10. Um, you might say, well, what about 1 Corinthians 7, where uh, Paul says, what if there's a believing wife, she has an unbelieving husband, and the unbelieving husband leaves her, abandons her? Paul says she's not, and the word he uses there, she's no longer enslaved. And so um, many people will look at that and they'll say, well, what Paul is saying is she's no longer obligated, she can now remarry. Possibly. But that's a little bit of a stretch, and if I hold that up against the clear teaching of Luke 16, 18, there's no way I can put 1 Corinthians 7 on top of Luke 16, 18 and come away with that. So, the point that, I, that I'm trying to make is that this is the most difficult position that I could possibly hold. And I wish I didn't. But I cannot, from the Scriptures, come away with any other understanding than the Scriptures teach us that followers of Jesus Christ are not allowed divorce or remarriage. They are allowed separation, but they're not allowed divorce or remarriage. Now, um, back to the words of Luke 16. Having said all that, again, this is rather provocative. But having said all that, to just kind of get back to the passage, the point that Jesus is making is, I'm not a relaxer of the law. So when you think that you stand on your righteousness, Jesus' point is, think again. You don't. Okay. So having said that, before I leave that, I do want to make three Three quick points about the whole divorce remarriage thing. And the first point that I would make is 
Number one, you can disagree with me. Um, it's okay. The gospel does not depend on your understanding of biblical divorce and remarriage. Okay, so feel free to disagree. Many, 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 many people do. The majority of people do. Okay, that my, my position is not the majority position at all. So feel free to disagree. That's okay. Here's what I would say. Whatever you believe, you better believe it. Because this issue is not going away. And I guarantee you, you will be faced with it. So if you've not thought through it well and come to a place that you're comfortable from the Scriptures, whether it's allowed in, in one situation or whether it's allowed in many situations, how you feel about remarriage, whatever, come to an understanding from the Scriptures because there's not a person in this room that is not touched by this. Our families, I mean, we have people in our immediate families. I've got a sister that's uh, divorced and remarried. Um, our friends, I mean, it, it, in our no-fault divorce, divorce culture, it's everywhere. And if you don't know what you believe, then you will be caught off guard when that friend's come, friend comes to you and says, I, I no longer love my husband, uh, but I've, you know, this guy at work, and, and we're just made for each other. And Know what you believe before that happens. Okay, so search the Scriptures um, and, uh, and come to your own firm conclusion with where you stand. It's okay to not have my position. Number two, I would say this. Jesus just taught us how significant words are. And so this passage is no different. The words of Jesus's the passage here are very, very significant. And I want to point us to two things about Jesus's words. One is what he does say, and two is what he doesn't say. Okay, Jesus does not say whoever divorces and marries another is an adulterer. Remember when Paul says that? Paul says these people won't inherit the kingdom of God. Liars, thieves, adulterers, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus does not say he who divorces his wife and marries another is an adulterer. He says they commit adultery. I may possibly be looking too closely at what Jesus says here, but I don't think so. I think that Jesus' meaning is this. Um, those who... Those believers in Jesus Christ who would be in the situation of a second marriage are not in perpetual adultery. Those believers in Jesus Christ who would be in a second marriage are not cursed by God. They are not in a marriage that God cannot bless. All of us know that from experience. We all know people followers of Jesus Christ, who are in a second marriage, and that marriage is a godly, Christ-like marriage that God is blessing. Uh, Dave Andreessen, is, his first marriage was a wreck. His second one is godly. Okay, So Jesus is not saying those who would find themselves in this position are perpetual adulterers. The second thing that Jesus says is notice that he says... Um, uh, he who marries a woman divorced from her husband. Jesus uses the word marries. And I think he uses that, uses that to validate the second marriage. I get that 
from connecting this and John 4. Okay, remember John chapter 4. Jesus is having a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And remember her situation? Jesus says, go get your husband. I have no husband. You're right. Oh, and you've had five. And the one that you're with now, you're not even married to. Jesus, I think in his words there, makes a differentiation between her living situation and this situation here. And in Luke 16, verse 18, he uses the word married. I take that to mean that Jesus validates the second marriage and says it is a marriage. There are those who would who would say, well, if, if divorce and remarriage is not possible, then that means everybody's still married to their first wife or their first husband, and the second marriage is invalid. I don't see that anywhere in the scriptures. I see that Jesus legitimizes or validates the second marriage by saying, you're married. You're not a perpetual adulterer. Now, does that mean that those who would be in a second marriage sort of carry around this burden that, that we're in this marriage that started out this way and started sinfully? Number, point number three is don't lose sight of Jesus' point. Jesus' point is not to sort of have this witch hunt and say, well, only those Christians who've ever been married once are, are godly Christians. His point is to say, if you want to stand on your righteousness, you don't have a leg to stand on. That's the whole point. So here's where we're careful not to lose sight of why Jesus uses this, uses this example. He's talking to people who self-justify themselves by saying, we're better than these others because we keep the law and we don't relax the law. And Jesus' point is, oh, really? No, you don't. And here's just one example, okay? So hopefully that, that helps. Um, it is an issue that I've struggled with for a decade. Now, you struggle with it. <laughs> um, it's not easy. No one, no one. Have, have you ever heard someone say, oh, the Bible's clear on this? No, it's not. No, it's not. Okay? Go home. Read all. I'll give them to you if you want. Read all the relevant passages in Scripture about divorce and remarriage. And I promise you, you will not get done and say, oh, that's easy. No. No. It's something to struggle with and wrestle with and come come to a biblical Holy Spirit-driven uh, understanding of that. Okay, so that's Jesus' point. Let's review the passage. Jesus tells this parable, don't be lovers of money, but children of the kingdom use earthly resources to invest in eternity. Jesus is laughed at and mocked by the lovers of money. And he turns to them to say, you followers of false religion, you are self-justifiers, you, uh, you, uh, your hearts are evil, you value that which God hates, and you reject the gospel of grace. You call me a law, law relaxer? Let me tell you what the true opinion of the law is. And oh, by the way, you are far greater law relaxers than I. You see, the Pharisees thought that they had it all. Spiritually speaking, they were the cream of the crop. They were the law keepers, and they could look down on those who they saw as non-law keepers. And so where does Jesus go next? You can look. 
There was once a rich man who also thought he had everything. But then there was this guy named Lazarus. And everybody thought he had nothing. Well, in the end, he was just the opposite. You see how now Jesus goes into that. You think that you're, you're the spiritually rich man. And you look down on everybody else like they're the spiritual Lazarus. But let me say to you that you are very, very, very wrong. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. 